You're listening to Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. All right, first up this week, we've got editorial assistant Jesse Sparks getting on the phone with basically editor and expert baker Sarah John Pell to talk about non-yeasted bread. Everyone's been obsessing over homemade sourdough lately and baking a lot with commercial store-bought yeast. But today, Jesse and Sarah are focusing on breads and bread-like things that are made without either of those. After that, Chef Tyler Cord reads an essay he wrote for BonAppetit.com called I Used to Be a Chef, Now I'm Defeating Monsters with a Toddler in My Empty Restaurant. Okay, here's Sarah and Jesse. Okay, Sarah Jampel, basically editor, baking extraordinaire, patron saint of tiny kitchen gear. How's it going? It's going well. I made a horrible loaf of bread yesterday. <laughs> oh, no. That is a great way to start off a bread podcast. I was cursing, which I do not curse regularly, and I was so frustrated. I think it's the kind of thing where, like, when it's good, it's good, and when it's bad, it is it is so bad. Absolutely. <laughs> the process. Absolutely. Wait, what happened? What happened? So I was like super diligent and it was sourdough, which like everyone can roll their eyes, but I was really diligent about it. And I had even written out like this full schedule of every time I had to fold it, like it's rests. I had coordinated my day around it. And I think I just um, let it overproof because it was kind of warm in my kitchen and I didn't take that into account. So when I went to look at it after it was fully risen it was ready to get shaped it was gigantic like pressing up against the lid super wet and I put it on the cutting board like my work surface and I was kind of like this is going to be fine I'm just going to like use use enough flour and anyway this was all like karmic energy because I Jesse I had been talking to you about this but like (laughs) a few days ago my husband was making bread and he was just like disastrously shaping it like no method (laughs) like and I was in there in the kitchen like over his shoulder like a little brat being like this is what are you doing like horrible and they came out super flat and I was like you know patting myself on the back little miss know-it-all and then yesterday my bread was a disaster (laughs) speaking of issues with sourdough there is so much to the world of bread and kind of your estimation can you give me kind of like a breakdown of like the three general categories of breads oh well i guess it's like you have leavened and unleavened breads um so like you know breads that are rising in some way and I guess like in ancient times, that was usually like wild yeast, which is sourdough and people who are still using wild yeast to bake or baking sourdough bread. And then you have breads that are leavened with instant or active dry or fresh yeast, which is like commercially made yeast. And that is much more convenient and it's much more reliable and consistent because like you're getting a product that was you know made in a factory, you know what you're getting. Instant yeast is my favorite of those because it's like virtually indestructible. Like my instant yeast has literally been in my fridge for years and still got, still got it. Yeah. And then there are like, you know, quick breads, which are breads that are leavened with chemical leaveners. So not yeast, which is like, you know, a living organism, but baking powder and baking soda. And then there's the world of unleavened breads, flatbreads. So like paratha, roti, they're probably hundreds of flatbreads just on the Indian subcontinent alone. And then like there are flatbreads literally in every single culture. 
Um, people at BA have been really into scallion pancakes lately, and they're like also, you know, tens of different types of scallion pancakes. And then to make it more confusing, some flatbreads are leavened. So like pita is a flatbread, but it's leavened. Naan is often leavened. Sometimes it's leavened with yeast. Sometimes it's leavened with baking powder and baking soda. Um, so yeah, it's a huge world. It's a big, <laughs> big wide world of bread. <laughs> oh my God, it's terrifying. So yeah. <laughs> one of the things that we're going to focus on today is the big wide world of non-yeasted doughs that still manage to produce those like beautiful bready like chewy textures so can you kind of tell me about what are some of your favorite examples of like the non-yeasted doughs if you're not going to use yeast i think like the best option usually is a leavener like baking powder baking soda soda breads are a really classic bread that's leavened with baking soda and it kind of like has that baking soda e taste but it's tamed by acid. So baking soda is a base, but if you add enough acid to it, you kind of like temper that, you know, basic taste. And those are super easy to put together and like hard to mess up. And that acidity in the dairy, oftentimes that's buttermilk, makes it tender. It's not, I wouldn't say it's like a great bread for like slicing like a sandwich or anything, but it's like great to pull apart and enjoy and you can make it savory or sweet. Those are great. And then you wrote about beer breads, which are fun because they use like the carbonation of beer in conjunction with the leavener to get an even bigger rise. And then another thing is that people on the internet um, have been kind of like pulling up these older recipes that are also like creative ways to get around this yeast shortage that we're having. And so something I've seen that I'm interested in is a salt risen bread, which I have not tried, but uh, apparently it has a stench. Like that's why people don't really <laughs> like to make it anymore. I'm into that. And then I've seen this peanut butter bread going around, which like uses yes. peanut butter to get that sort of bread-like consistency. Yeah, and then I think like flatbreads are a different, often provide like a different thing like it's kind of a different product, but I find those to be super satisfying to make. We have um, a yogurt flatbread on the site developed by Joshua McFadden and another one by Chris Morocco. And those are both very fast breads to make and they don't involve any yeast at all. And yeah, I mean, I also have made like a non-type flatbread that was uh, used baking powder and baking soda and yogurt. And that turned out really well also. Mm. So there are a lot of options if you don't have yeast though it's not exactly the same <laughs> absolutely so then if i'm looking for an easily sliceable bread that i can kind of use interchangeably the way that i would like a sandwich bread would i go for like a soda bread versus a beer bread a lot of the the sandwich a sandwich bread type crumb structure is kind of it needs yeast to happen mm -hmm. like i think one thing that is kind of funny is that like um, we published this really easy no need focaccia for basically and we we're getting some questions from people understandably because it's hard to find yeast about like whether they could make it without yeast and unfortunately like for those types of bread yeast is really imperative like you're not going to get you're not gonna going to get a great replica without it. I would say like soda bread probably doesn't make 
a great sandwich bread, but I do think some beer breads could give you that like that tanginess and maybe like a fine tight crumb that would be good for slicing and, and toasting. So then can you kind of give me a rundown of some of the different uses for some of the breads that you've already mentioned? So like, when are you going to use a beer bread or a soda bread? I think beer breads are good. Like if you're making like a, a loaf and you want to use a loaf pan and you want it to like have that kind of tall sliceable look and a soda bread people often make them free form or you can make it in a cast iron skillet and it's more something that you would like cut into wedges and serve with like brunch or eggs or it's kind of more like a biscuit mm. um like you would eat it more like a biscuit or a scone uh than you would a sliceable bread and one of the things that you mentioned that I just have loved about the wide world of flatbreads is just the amount of dairy options that you can get. So like that yogurt and Joshua McFadden's flatbread makes it so tender, so so chewy and pillowy. Can you kind of give me a rundown of how other dairies are going to bring about those like super quick, super chewy and tender results? Totally. So I've been thinking a lot about dairy swaps. I remember that the YouTube um, series of like Test Kitchen Editor's kitchen tours went up and Claire Mm -hmm. went into her fridge and it was like she named all the types of dairy she had and it was truly an inspiration. It was like cultured butter, um, unsalted butter, salted butter, creme fraiche, sour cream, buttermilk, mascarpone, milk. I could like she went on forever and it was hilarious but the truth is like most people (laughs) I think don't have that many types of dairy so it is like I feel like swapping in dairy and recipes is a question people have all the time so I think like the three things I think about are fat content thickness like viscosity Mm -hmm. and acidity I think those are like three important factors to think about and then you can also get into like protein levels but I think that the other three are enough information. So like if your bread calls for yogurt, that's like fairly acidic because it's fermented versus like milk isn't acidic in the same way. And it's thick and our BA recipe probably calls for full fat yogurt. So you can figure out how much the fat percentage is probably 5%. So then if you're like, oh, can I put milk in this? Well, milk is thin. It's not as fatty because I think whole milk is around 3% and it's not as acidic. So like you're not going to get the tenderness, you're not going to get the right texture. So it's probably not a good substitute. But like sour cream, it's thicker, it's more like yogurt in consistency, it's fattier and it's tangy. So that's a better swap. And I've also been getting questions from people who like only have cream but um want to substitute milk and that's also the sort of thing where it's like you have to think about the fat percentages and and how much you'll want of each one to add up to something that makes sense Um, because you don't want to introduce too much fat from the cream yeah I think those are like the three biggest questions I ask myself and sometimes if I have something thick like sour cream and I'm trying to use it in place of something thin like buttermilk I'll just thin it out whether that's with water or with milk, so that at least it's the right consistency. Because I feel like otherwise you're going to have to compensate by adding more flour. So then 
one thing that I also loved about all of the dairy swaps and negation conversations that you and I have been having a lot of is um, the way that certain flatbreads don't even need dairy at all. So like specifically roti, um, which you've mentioned before and Priya has written an article and a recipe for, doesn't require the that same dairy input to get that beautiful kind of texture. Yeah, I mean, I think that like roti, at least from what I understand from Priya, is something that like it takes kind of practice to get it right. And when you get it right, it can be a really wonderful thing. But you also need to understand that there's going to be a learning curve, like kind of like, you know, making a flour tortilla, I think is similar in that like you're not using dairy and it it can be not great if you haven't practiced. And I think like the thing that dairy can do is make your dough a little more forgiving um, so for beginners or people who, you know, kind of want to like get it right first time around, it can be really great. At the same time, I think like being able to make roti is kind of like an amazing skill that I do not have. But I think that if you want to like put in the time to practice making a wonderful bread, basically just from mm-hmm. wheat flour and water, then that's like a truly amazing thing that will serve you well for the rest of your life. And I think that if you are scared about that and you want to start with dairy as kind of a buffer, it's a good place to start. Absolutely. So those are both great options for people who are having trouble finding some of these ingredients at their local grocery stores, either going the route of making tortillas and roti and practicing and getting used to the technique and like being okay with making some of the mistakes, but then also kind of falling back on those yogurt or more dairy-based flatbreads. Um, I know that we have a great bacon fat tortilla recipe from Rick. Have you had a chance to crack into that? No, I haven't, but I really do want to try making my own tortillas. I think that would be really fun and like a great way to make a taco amazing. Absolutely. We have recently been doing a series on Instagram called Chefs at Home, which is kind of looking at all of our different favorite chefs and what they're making using their own home kitchens and the resources they have at their disposal. So I know that Eric Z recently made a very ingenious scallion pancake recipe using roux. Have you seen that before? I hadn't seen it before he did it and it was amazing, like revelatory. I I strongly encourage everyone to go watch his technique. It's really cool. I had only made scallion pancakes like the one that Sue Lee developed for BA um, and those don't have a roux, but they are, they do have a, like the classic scallion pancake shaping technique, which is that you you roll it out and then you roll it into a log and then you take that log and you roll it into a spiral and then you roll that spiral into a round, which is how you get that like hypnotic looking ring. And that is that recipe is flawless. Like it's easy to make, it's quick. I mean, it takes some rolling, but I think it's good practice for like rolling things thinly and evenly and it's extremely satisfying and they get super puffy and crispy in the skillet. But I really want to try Eric's also. And it feels like it's coming at a perfect time when so many people are also just regrowing their own scallions, regrowing their own alliums to begin with. Yeah, and I feel like scallion pancake is that type of thing where you could really deep dive into it. Like you could probably pick a different scallion pancake recipe and not only like recipe but like variations like country of origin region of origin you could probably do that for weeks if not months or years like you could just you could go through them all and take notes make a notebook that sounds 
fun. Honestly, do that. <laughs> oh, another thing that, I, that we haven't mentioned yet is self-rising flour, which is yes. just flour that's been mixed with leaveners and salt. And that's also a good option. I feel like a lot of stores, at least at the beginning of this isolation period, were kind of running out of all flours. But, you know, specialty flours like self-rising flours, and mm-hmm. those can be great if you're making oftentimes biscuits or muffins something where you won't mind having some salt and leavener added into it i do think it's important to like research the normal ratio like for every cup of self-rising flour there is some amount of baking powder and some amount of salt i don't know what the exact ratio off the top of my head and then looking at that and being able to sub it in i got a question about whether someone could use self-rising flour in the focaccia and it was kind of like Mm -hmm. There's too much salt in the self-rising flour that by the time you add it in, you add it to the focaccia, your focaccia would be so salty that I don't think it would be edible anymore. So it is the kind of thing that can be a great resource, but you kind of need to use it in small quantities. Like if you're making bread that requires five cups of flour, it will be way too much salt. So are there any other types of specialty flours that you recommend people stock up on? Hmm, that's a great question. I really like chickpea flour. I think that's probably like my alt flour of choice. Not because it's a substitute for all purpose at all, because it's definitely not. It like is super flavorful. It's gluten-free because it's made of chickpeas, so it will never like do what your flour can do. But you can use it to make soca, also called farinata, which is a chickpea flatbread that's super delicious. It's not really like red like it's not like American style sandwich bread, but mm-hmm. it does give you that same like satisfying doughiness. It's really good. And I think like the thing to think about in terms of swapping in flours when you're baking is again, like is this flour gluten-free or, or does it have gluten in it? And then like if it has gluten in it, what is the level? Because like almond flour is a flour in name, but mm-hmm only in name like it's not flour it's ground up almonds almonds are like super fatty and they also have no gluten in them so like they're never going to give you structure they'll give you tenderness they'll give you flavor same with like buckwheat flour chickpea flour all these other things that aren't actually really flours they're tasty and they have like lots of great applications but they can never do what your flour can (laughs) there's a time and a place for every type of flour I think that the smartest thing I've heard about baking this quarantine is from Stella Parks, who's like truly a baking goddess. Um, but she was kind of like talking about these questions of substitutions and the something that came up was somebody like called into a podcast she was on and they were like, my wife is pregnant. She's craving white cake, but all we have is whole wheat flour. Like, what can I make? Oh my God, yes. And Stella was kind of like, white cake is... The entire point is like you use the most refined flour available. Like you, sorry, you'll like never get white cake with whole wheat flour. And it was really funny and also kind of sad. But her message was like, you just need to manage your expectations. Like it's fine to make any substitute you want. Like you are empowered to do that. But know that you can't make a white cake with whole wheat flour. And sometimes it's probably better to choose a different recipe. And I thought that was really smart advice, but also kind of hard to hear because like when your heart is set on something, it sucks for someone to be like, no, sorry, you can't. But unfortunately it's the reality. Yeah, but that's okay. Cause it gives you something to look forward to. 
Sarah, thank you so much for all of your time. Thank you for showing me your bread baking ways. Uh, now that I'm super hungry, I'm ready to go make a quick loaf of my own. Yeah, we have a really flat loaf in the, <laughs> in the kitchen that I think I'll <laughs> slice into. I think what's also wait, I have one more thing to say about bread. Oh my gosh, this is good. Okay, I have been obsessively listening to this podcast called Staying In with Kumail and Emily, yes. which is um, Kumail Nanjiani and his wife, Emily V. Gordon. I want them to be my best friends. If you're listening to this, please <laughs> be my friend. Anyway, Kumail, every week they talk about one weird thing that made them cry. And Kumail had one week he tweeted being like okay i'm loving all your bread please send me pictures of your homemade bread and he was not trolling he was being incredibly genuine and he made this thing on twitter which he now calls the bread thread but it was like truly hundreds of people responding with pictures of their bread and it brought him to tears because he was like it's so nice to see all these people who are so proud of what they've made anyway i love him and i love her Oh, that's incredible. (laughs) Thanks, Jesse. (laughs) Anytime. Hi, I'm Tyler Cord, and I used to have a restaurant. I might still have a restaurant. It's called Number 7, and it's in Brooklyn. And I wrote this story about it, but more so uh, I wrote about my daughter, Barbara, and this is and this is the essay I wrote for Bon Appetit. And also, uh, if you like it, and even if you don't, and you want to help out, we have a we have a staff a staff fundraiser GoFundMe thingy. And Vans, the shoe company Vans, uh, made some really special shoes for us. Uh, they're really cool, and they have all kinds of cool things on them, and they're custom, and they're very limited edition. Anyway, and the and the profits go to us. So uh, the links for those things. And also uh, Brooklyn for Life, who is supporting us in in cooking for hospitals. Uh, the links for all those things are in the article. So if you go to the to the Bon Appetit website, you'll see them. I promise. Oh, great! They're in the show notes, guys. Emma said so. All right. I guess I guess I'm ready then. I'm super good at cooking, making big pots of beans and rice, and prepping 200 fried chicken sandwiches in 15 minutes is not difficult for me or my exceptional wife, Catherine, or my always killer kitchen staff. It's essentially what we've been doing at my restaurant number seven for almost 12 years, and at other places in the industry since long before that. It's just that right now, my restaurant is closed, and all the cooking we're doing is for hospitals, fire departments, and first responders in Brooklyn. And we're doing it all while also having a three-year-old lunatic named Barbara at my side at all times. My daughter, Barbara, does not know that there's a global pandemic happening. She is aware that there are yucky germs around, and that's why we wash our hands so much and wear masks and gloves, and it is absolutely affecting her. The other night, as I was trying to convince her to go to sleep, she had a small-scale freakout and demanded sanitizer, and it's troubling. She doesn't get why all of the playgrounds are closed or why she isn't allowed to come into the grocery store with me and push the cart. I realize there are tons of people out there who don't share my privilege of having food and stable housing and cable television loaded with as much Blue's Clues and you as she can possibly watch, and also Josh Rules. But I'm having a harder and harder time explaining why our lives are so constricted without scaring her. Luckily, I am her best friend in the world, so she is fine with hanging near me all day and not going to daycare. Unfortunately, I have a lot of work to do. What this all looks like in practice is a dad constantly trying to convince his daughter that what would really be best right now, 
as he glazes 60 pounds of chicken and broccoli meatloaf with ketchup and sweet chili sauce is if she would just have a little more screen time over in that booth. Maybe some Frozen 2. Maybe some YouTube, which Catherine has meticulously combed through to remove all the videos of creepy adults unwrapping toys, though they still find a way of occasionally popping up. But she's unfortunately capable of staring at a screen for only so long, probably because she was born to be the greatest chef, surgeon, abstract painter of all time. So while the cooks stand six feet apart, finishing those meatloaves, and Catherine boxes a huge amount of food and then tries to figure out loans and insurance and how to keep our restaurant open, uh, and she spent a couple of years volunteer cooking in post-Katrina New Orleans, so she's not as stressed as me. Uh, and my amazing friends, Matthew Maddie and Josh Barak, drive the deliveries to the hospitals. Barbara and I run. A lot. Thankfully, Number 7 is a very long restaurant. An 1,800-square-foot indoor playground, but with cooks to sneak up on and plenty of ice cream in the freezer. We've used up all the good hiding spots for hide-and-seek, but recently we've taken to drawing pictures of monsters and taping them up in crafty places, like under the soda gun or on the top shelf of the walk-in. Then we go around, find the monsters, and defeat them by vigorously pointing our magic wands, which are uh, magic markers, at them and shouting, POWERS! Because YouTube must have taught her that is how magic wands work. Sometimes one of them will freeze me and I will fall to the floor unable to move until Barbara finds the nearest monster and neutralizes it. But even with an oblivious three-year-old sprinting around, the restaurant feels somber. Every time we unlock the door and wrangle Barbara's stroller into the entrance, she asks where everybody is. She says hi to the cooks, or gets shy and hides behind me, even though she's known these guys her short but entire life. I suspect it's the masks. The guys are here because they want to be, but they're worried about the future, and so am I. We've all made the choice to accept an increased risk of infection, the significance of which I do not mean to casually understate. But my hands feel figuratively tied to feeding the front line. Clueless Barbara is just along for the ride. I know if we didn't have her with us all day, I would feel more comfortable about all of this. I know we would all be less exhausted. I know we could take more orders from the group paying us to cook for the hospital workers. And please go to brooklynforlife.org to learn how you can help. And when I say help, I mean give them lots of money. And with more orders, I could be paying my undocumented kitchen staff more money, which is the reason I'm doing this in the first place, because the government has yet to address the lack of a safety net for restaurant workers. My guys work hard and pay taxes but aren't able to collect unemployment or stimulus checks or get access to health care, even when they're in a situation like one of my favorite uninsured cooks who is sick at home with what seems to be COVID-19, which is deeply troubling. Although, quick update, he's okay. But I can't help value this time with Barbara anyway. Where we're not running around, she helps me cook, essentially by making a huge mess. She likes to stir things, but it's a little scary when it's 10 pounds of boiling macaroni and cheese. And she is entirely in charge of putting unicorn stickers on the finished takeout boxes. I don't want to steal any credit there. The cooks find my constant need to entertain her in itself entertaining, and I'm glad we can provide some comic relief in all of this. When she's not feeling shy, she will dance and insist that the cooks look at her iPad from time to time, because sometimes the joke is so funny that it needs to be shared to really experience it, even when you're three. The restaurant is starting to feel more like home for her, instead of just a place where Daddy takes her in between brunch and dinner while Catherine finishes her shift and I get ready for dinner service. 
It may be harder being one part chef, telling the cooks what to do, and two parts babysitter, making sure Barbara eats things other than the potato chips we used to lure her to the restaurant in the first place. But these are not ordinary times. Barbara being there means we all get to keep working and keep getting paid. And I think there is something reassuring about her presence. Maybe when we reopen, she will have a permanent, though honorary for legal purposes, job. Because while the restaurant feels hollow right now, it will feel even more lonely to be there without her when things go back to normal. Tonight at home we're going to make lamb dumplings, and Barbara probably won't touch them. But she'll eat some broccoli, because she's definitely my kid, and be horrible at bedtime. And then I will drink too much vodka, and remember to take my anti-anxiety medication, which seems to be the only reason this is not the craziest article ever written. Then we'll do it all over again tomorrow, and the next day, and the day after that, and eventually this will end, and we will have done everything we could to help the undocumented immigrants and first-line responders that do so much for us. And frankly, the everything we could do will likely have amounted to very little, and that is frustrating. We'll see what's become of restaurants, and whether the independently owned ones like Number 7 have a place in it all, but I am relatively at peace waiting to find out what will happen, because I have work to do, literal mouths to feed, and monsters to hunt with magic wands. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced and edited by Emma Wartzman with additional programming help from Carrie Polis and Elise Namine. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wartzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to reach out to us about this episode or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.